All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. We're going to be finishing John chapter 2 this morning. And um, just to kind of give you a heads up of where we're going here in the next couple weeks, uh, we're actually going to take a detour uh, after this week. And we're going to uh, go uh, to two different areas. We're going to go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 next week. And then the week after that, we're going to be looking at Psalm 13. So uh, we'll take a little detour, but then we'll get right back to John starting in the third chapter, which is chock full of good stuff, if you are familiar with that at all. Um, I've titled the sermon this morning, An Uncorrupt Heart, because as we finish John chapter 2, we're going to see a lot of the impacts of corruption. Corruption is a phrase you may be familiar with, because you may hear phrases like, that politician is corrupt, or you know things of that nature. Right? I feel like that's kind of where we, we hear that the most, is, is with politics. But Maybe if you've ever worked on a computer, you've seen the dreaded, your file could not be opened because the file is corrupt on your computer. That's where I see it a lot more. Uh, and when I was in seminary, uh, I had kind of a, like a panic moment with that. Um, I had my longest paper due was 21 pages long. And what I normally do when I worked on seminary papers is I would write the body in Google Docs because it would always save it through the cloud, I would never lose that information. And then I would format it the Southern way. So I would uh, put it on there and uh, I would uh, manipulate the, the, the text and make it look like my seminary wanted it to look like for their, their uh, framework. And so I remember it was the day the paper was due and I had worked on it the day before. I'd spent hours formatting it, getting the footnotes right, getting everything ready. I mean, this paper was pristine. It looked good. I was, I was happy about it. And then I go to open it to, to do one, you know, a couple little final tweaks and then submit it. And I got the dreaded error. Your file could not be open because it was corrupt. And so I tried everything I could in my technology mindset to fix it. And I just couldn't. So I had to restart. Thankfully, I had the body of the, of the paper written and Google. So I, I did, had to do that. But man, it was it was rough because the thing is with the corrupted file, you can't really tell until you try to open it. I, everything about it looks right. Like it looks it has the icon. It's got the, the, the text. You can email it. You can move it around. You can do all this other stuff to it. But when you try to open it, it's corrupt. It doesn't work. And so corruption is defined in our world uh, as more of something that's dishonest. Right? When we talk about things that are corrupted in our world, we talk about uh, a, a someone or something that is, that is dishonest, that, that isn't exactly what it seems like it should be. But when we look at God's word, corruption goes so much deeper. It's not just about dishonesty, it's brokenness. It's an infection of the heart. It is a lack of a transformed heart. So as we look at our passage this morning, I want us to observe three things uh, about this text, and these are also kind of my main points for you note takers. So this is kind of how we're going to structure it this morning. We're going to be looking first at the corruption of the temple. Then we're going to look at the corruption of the heart. And then finally, we're going to look at how Jesus is the antidote to the corruption of sin. So John 2 verses 13 through 25 says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons a money changer sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he raised, he was risen from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Will you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today, and fathers, we study this text and, and look at the corruption of the heart. God, I pray that you'd help us to see, Father, maybe where we're corrupt. God, where sin has entangled us. God, where our hearts are not necessarily where it should be. Father, I pray that you'd correct those things in us. And God, I pray as we, as we look at this text, God, that we would see the different examples of what corruption does. And God, that we would learn from those things. God, that we would seek to honor and glorify you in everything that we do. And, and Father, I pray, God, that you would just Help us, Father, as we read this text, God, to understand it better. God, that you would use this text to speak into our hearts and our lives. And God, that we would learn what it means, Father, to trust in you, the one who can fix our corrupt hearts. God, I pray that, Father, for those that know you and read this word, God, that if there would be any sin that they see in their life, God, that they would turn from those things and turn to you. So, God, we thank you for this morning. And God, we thank you for all that you do. Your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen. So the first we're going to look at is uh, the corruption of the temple. So this is kind of in the first part of this passage. And uh, as when I was when I was going to church here, this was always one of my youth pastors like favorite things to talk about was how Jesus would flip tables. <laughs> and so uh, this is the passage where he does that. So kind of giving a little bit of background, if you're not really familiar with what's going on here, uh, the Passover is the Jewish celebration where they come together and they feast and they make atonement for sins and they remember what happened in the Exodus. Uh, in Exodus, if you remember, it's the, it's the second book of the Bible. Uh, the last plague that God brought on to Egypt because Moses or uh, the uh, Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. They were in slavery. And so God sent different plagues to really wake Pharaoh up to his power that he would allow his people to go. And so the very last of these plagues was that the angel of death would come and take away every firstborn son. So that the angel of death would pass over God's people. They put the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. And when the angel saw the blood, it moved on. And so that's why it's called Passover, for God passed over his people when the last plague was enacted over Egypt. And so at the Passover celebration, Jews would use livestock, or livestock for a sacrificial offering and also have to pay a temple tax. So what is happening is that all these vendors that are conducting this business are actually doing it in the temple them itself. And so this is a normal celebration. This is something that is, is held in, in a high uh, level of 
important in the life of, of those who were Jewish at the time and, and those who were God's people. And so Passover was a big deal. People would come over from, from all around to go to Jerusalem, to go to the temple, to celebrate the Passover. But the temple was not meant to be a place where you sold things. It was not meant to be a marketplace. The temple was meant to be God's dwelling place among his people. See, at this time, God would dwell among his people in a temple or tabernacle or something physical rather than the way he dwells with us now through the Holy Spirit, through those who belong to him. And the temple at this time was, set up, was meant to be set apart as holy. There were all these different things about the temple that were, that were, that were put together in terms of rules and, and the things that, that people could and couldn't do in the temple or around the temple. And they were done so to set the temple apart, to keep it holy, to keep it, to keep it as something that would be a, a, a beacon of, of who God is and, and a place of genuine worship. The temple was supposed to be honored. The temple was meant to be a place of worship to our God. But instead, God's dwelling place was being used as a marketplace. And Jesus, in response to this, responded by driving out these vendors and flipping tables. Now, every, every scene you've ever seen of this is always so interesting because we always imagine and depict Jesus as this very gentle, mild manner, you know, never would hurt a fly kind of person. But then we see a scene like this where his God or his, his father's house is being basically abused. And so Jesus responds with anger that this is not right and drives them out. Now, I want to kind of give a couple things where I, some people will use this passage to justify certain actions, but I want you to understand something. Jesus, when he made a whip of cords, when he was flipping tables, he didn't hurt anybody. You know, whenever he was using that whip, he was using it to drive out the oxen and the livestock so that the people that were selling those things would have to go after him. Right. He wasn't, you know, Indiana Jonesing it and like going after and like hurting people or using his fists and punching people in the face. Like that wasn't what Jesus was doing, and nor was Jesus enraged. Jesus was just driving them out to clean out his father's house in a way that was good and a way that was holy. The disciples remembered. David's psalm in which he proclaims that he is zealous for making God a temple to dwell in. If you remember, King David back in the Old Testament wanted to make God an actual temple, a, a place where he would stay, a place that he would dwell in. David never got to build the temple, but his son Solomon did. And they remember the same passion that dwelled in David as he said he was zealous for his father's house. And this same zealousness dwells in his heir, Jesus. Jesus recognized the corruption in the temple and worked to drive out corruption. So what can, we, what can we learn from this? Well, the first is that our houses of worship should not be turned into something that draws people away from God. Now, I want to clarify a couple of things. One, the temple is no longer a building, right? Like when we look at this in the Old Testament and, and even at the very beginning of the New Testament, the temple was where God dwelt among his people. But when Jesus came onto the scene, now God dwelt among Jesus and that's how we do, he, he interacted with his people. God was no longer in a temple. He was in Christ. And then after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit was given to those who would believe, now God dwells in us through his spirit. That's why the church is not a building. That's why we say that is because the church isn't a building. The church is those who belong to the Lord, those who belong to God. 
That's why we have all these churches that can be in different places and yet still be honoring God in the way that they're practicing, right? That's why we have house churches and church plants. That's why there's, there have been churches that have met in movie theaters and have still brought honor and glory to God through what they're doing because they're just utilizing the, the resources that God has given them and they've been good stewards of it. So what do I mean by this when I say that our houses of worship should not be turned into something that draws people away from God? Because we design buildings and churches and places for gathering for worship as a way to draw others to God. The entire purpose of why, for example, we use this building or why maybe church plants use a movie theater or, you know, use whatever resources are at their disposal. They do those things for the purpose of gathering and worshiping God. And so when it comes to honoring God with the way that we use our resources, we have to use any facilities that we use for the purpose of worship to draw people to God and not to other things. So, for example, if you if you have a church that meets in a movie theater if they're in the background playing the latest movie while they're trying to worship, what are they doing? Are they drawing people to the film and to the theater? Or are they drawing people to the Lord? Well, obviously, they'd be, they'd be drawing people to the movie. And so we need to work on combating this in our own minds and our own hearts. And that we should desire to honor God with the way that we utilize facilities, the way that we utilize our houses of worship. And our churches should be a place where we invite people to worship the living and holy God, and not draw them away from him. So what are some modern examples of this? Well, a couple of examples of this are that there are churches that will spend more time and money on appearance and flashy things than necessary things. Churches that would, will spend millions of dollars to, to make themselves look better rather than u- using those funds to draw people to the Lord. Now, there's a balance to that, right? Because Updating facilities and, and making the facilities uh, done in a way that is, it is updated and it is used to draw, to not draw people in for the flash of things, but to draw people in in terms of this is a welcoming place. This is a place you're invited to. That's different than making necessarily updates to just be really flashy and entertain. Right? So, for example, there have, been, there have been churches in the past that have spent thousands of dollars on turning their sanctuary into uh, like, let's say, like prop studios and other things like that, but for the purpose of drawing people to that church, to worship that church and not drawing them to God. Or it's a focus on how to draw more attention to themselves rather than to the gospel, or even more attention to who's preaching rather than the word that the preacher is preaching. So, what is this not? Well, one, I, I mentioned, I don't believe updating facilities is the same thing as turning your church into a marketplace. But also, selling and providing resources does not turn your church into a, a marketplace. Right? Like, let's say you have a church in the lobby that sells books or sells resources. They do those things to help people grow closer to the Lord and to provide resources for them to do that on their own. Right? They, like churches that have, like bookstores, for example, like if you go to a really large church, they might have one or a library, or resources they can purchase, those, I don't believe those qualify as the same as turning a church into a marketplace. Because those things are being utilized to draw people closer to the Lord. Or even being hospitable. Churches that have coffee in the lobby, for example, I don't necessarily think that they're living in sin or turning their church into a marketplace. 
they're being hospitable. They're inviting people in and they're providing something for them to drink as they come in. And coffee is a great way to do that. And it keeps people awake. I would even argue, too, that the use of technology, right, to draw others to the Lord is not necessarily sinful or turn places into a marketplace. But again, there's a balance because you can use technology in a way that is that is good, in a way that draws people to the Lord, that helps people hear the sermon better, that helps people to understand what's going on and what's in God's word and to have it to be accessible and the gospel to be accessible. But then there are people that use technology and just kind of blow it all out of the water. For example, sometimes we focus more on lighting and more on smoke and more on on things that seem like we're performing a show rather than what are we drawing people to? And that's worship. So we have to guard ourselves from the temptation of being flashy, from the temptation of drawing people just to a building or using the resources that God has given us to turn the church into a marketplace. And by God's grace, I think that there's a lot more examples of churches doing this right than churches doing this wrong. And so the next, the next thing that we can learn from this passage is that Jesus displayed righteous, uncorrupted anger. So I'm going to say something and it might go, you might go, hold on, wait a minute. I don't know if I agree with that. The emotion of anger itself isn't sinful. So God has given us our emotions. We are made in his image to express those emotions in a way that is God honoring. And anger is one of those emotions. If you look at For example, the Old Testament, God at times gets angry, but it's a righteous anger. It's an anger that is not enacted out in sin. It's an uncorrupted anger. See, sinful anger is shown in response and also to what you're angry about. And if we notice the way Jesus was angry in this, notice that Jesus didn't blow up. He didn't uh, become rageful. He was zealous for his father's house, but he didn't turn into this blind rage monster that just went through and, and tore up everything he saw. He had purpose and design behind the zealousness that he had. See, we can become angry when something we love is being threatened or harmed, but how we respond is incredibly important. Do we respond in ways that are sinful or do we respond in ways that are right? So for example, I love my wife and kids. I love my family. If, if, if anyone were, were to ever threaten them or to harm them and nothing in me stirred up any sort of anger at the thought of them being threatened or harmed, would you question my love for them? Probably. Well, what about for the church or for the things that, that God, God deems as, as, as good? If we see the Imago Dei, people made in God's image being harmed or or being abused or being threatened, and that doesn't stir anything up in us. Do we, do we truly love people? See, sometimes what we are angry about shows what we truly love. And sometimes we love the wrong things. We love our image, or we love our jobs, or we love things more than we love people. People being taken from us or people being harmed doesn't anger us as much as the things that we have being taken away, right? Like, you know, um, with, with, if you have kids or if you've ever had kids, you know that there comes a season where, where kids love toys more than they love things. 
And for you to take that toy creates a, a ton of anger in them. But if, if they were to see someone they love getting hurt, it doesn't really anger them as much because it shows that there's, there's, they're, they're still learning what it means to love people more than they love things. And so what are some examples of this? Because I, I, this might be a little bit confusing. How, do you, how can you tell the difference between anger that may be righteous and anger that may be sinful? Well, the first, you know, I believe a couple of sinful examples would be that you scream at somebody who is going too slow in the fast lane because you're running late for work. You yell, you call them names, and you might even tailgate them for a few miles. But why do you do this? You do this because you love your position to work or your appearance more than others. That person who's driving slow in the left lane, yeah, you can, you can say, that's not a wise decision. That's unsafe. Absolutely. But calling them names, yelling at them, showing hatred towards someone made in God's image, that is not loving, and that is sinful. Or maybe, maybe you're someone who's quick to anger. Maybe you're someone whose response to the world and, and response to those around you is anger, and that's the first thing you go to. And that's not right either. That's sinful. It shows a lack of patience. It shows a lack of self-control. Being quick to anger is not a good thing. Having a short fuse is something we have to guard against and work on. So what are some righteous examples? What are some examples that are, that are what we would call honoring to God, which is kind of weird to say that. It angers you to see those who are innocent being harmed, but you don't scream. You don't lose your temper. You express anger and not rage. You know, there's a, there's a saying that, that, you know, those who belong to the Lord should work to be slow to anger. And that's something that I believe Jesus definitely was. Jesus wasn't someone to get angry quickly. In fact, really, I think only one of the only things that we see Jesus getting angry about is really this. And when he also calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. But he gets angry about things that are that are wrong to the Lord. He gets angry about things that are that are a. A bad image of what it looks like to know the Lord and to love him well. But notice that Jesus never was quick to anger, especially when the Pharisees were trying to threaten him or were mocking him or were insulting him or trying to entrap him. Jesus was patient. He was kind. He was loving. But when the time came for him to express anger, to express it rightly, he did so in a way that was, wasn't sinful. So another example of this, too, is this is just this help, has helped me a lot. And my own nerdy mind of thinking is in Star Wars. We see this, too. Yeah, there's this idea that if you become angry, then you turn to the dark side, which is like the bad, the bad people in Star Wars. So there's two characters in Star Wars, Anakin and Luke. Anakin gave into his anger that became hatred, and then he became the villain, Darth Vader. But Luke Skywalker, in the same breath, became angry when his sister was threatened. And he used that anger to defeat Darth Vader. He didn't harm him. He just disarmed him. And then when the emperor thought he had won and that he had turned his son Luke to the dark side, Luke threw his lightsaber and said, I'm a Jedi like my father before me and didn't give in to his anger. He used it to defend his sister, to defeat Darth Vader, but he never used it for hatred 
and he never, he never turned like his father did. And I know that's a weird example, maybe if you've never seen the Star Wars movies, but for me, I always thought that was helpful because I, I've always struggled with this idea of what it means to have righteous anger. The difference between defending the innocent and, and loving people well, and the difference between just becoming angry and blowing your top and just becoming rageful. But I think if we really think about it, the difference is clear. The difference is that sinful anger is corrupt. It's an anger that, that results in sin and harm. It's, it's an anger that results in hatred. It's an anger that results in us doing things that are unchristlike because we give in to our emotions. But whereas righteous anger is a one that reflects God. It reflects the things he gets angry about and it reflects the way that he expresses that anger. Not in rage, not in harm, but in love. So Jesus did not sin when he became angry. And unlike Jesus, however, we can corrupt our anger, but we must learn to guard it from corruption, to get angry about the right things, and to guard our anger from becoming sin. So the next passage is the corruption of the heart. And so after Jesus does this and he flips tables and he drives people out, the Jews basically asked Jesus, what authority do you have to do this? Now, notice it's interesting that when Jesus wasn't arrested right there on the spot, because imagine this happening today, right? You have a big gathering of people, maybe in a church, and they're selling a bunch of stuff, and you have somebody that comes in and starts flipping tables and kicking people out. What do you think that would cause, right? That person would get arrested. It would, I, I don't know what laws they would, they would broke, but I would imagine if they're, they're doing that and causing a public disturbance that it could be grounds for getting arrested. But notice what they didn't do. They didn't ask Jesus, why did you do this? They didn't immediately arrest him right then and there or say, this is grounds for being arrested. This is grounds for us now getting to crucify you on the cross because the Pharisees at this point did not like Jesus because they knew this was wrong. The Jewish leaders knew that this wasn't right. They knew that, that God's temple was meant to be holy and set apart, but they just let this slide. So they asked him, what authority do you have to do this? Not a why, but by what authority do you have to do this to the temple? And they wanted a sign. And they wanted something similar to what Jesus did when he turned water to wine. And he responds by telling them to destroy the temple and in three days he will raise it up. But here's the thing. They missed the point. They thought they were talking about the building, or he was talking about the building. He said, it took us 46 years to build this thing, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he wasn't talking about the building. Jesus was talking about the, himself. Because he was sharing that he is the one that God dwells in. Not a building, not the temple, but in Christ. But they missed it. Why'd they miss it? Because the hearts of these Jewish leaders were corrupt. And they were only thinking of the building. They were only thinking of things that were external. They weren't thinking about Jesus being the Messiah. Already have shown them all the signs that they needed to see that he was who he says he is, but they still didn't believe. That all they could think about was the law. All they could think about was the building. All they could think about was themselves. They didn't grasp 
what Jesus was doing. Now, granted, the disciples didn't fully either, but eventually they did. Their hearts were hardened to the truth of who Jesus is and what he was teaching. And we see this corruption of the heart all throughout Jesus' interactions with them, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. The corruption of their heart and unwillingness to learn drove them to crucify an innocent Jesus. And when Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit was given to those who believed in him, it is then that the dwelling place went from a building to Jesus and now to us. And God dwells within those who believe through his spirit. Now Jesus, Jesus never hid what was to come. Right? Like, whenever Jesus would talk about the coming hour that he would die, that he would be crucified, he never hid what was going to happen. And now we know, because we know the entirety of the story, what he was talking about. But back then, they didn't know how the story was going to end. Yet, Jesus told them over and over again how it was going to end. That he was going to die. That he was going to be given over. That he was going to be crucified. That he was going to be risen from the dead three days later. And yet, they still didn't believe him. These disciples who saw all these signs were still blinded by their own corruption. But they didn't recognize who Jesus was and what he came here to do until after the fact. When Jesus came to them in the room that they were hidden in. Then they finally understood. That's why John says here that it was then after Jesus was crucified and was risen from the dead that they understood what Jesus meant here in this passage. So what can we learn from this? Well, the first, I believe, is that we need to live as those the Spirit dwells in. If we are the new temple, if we are the ones that God is meant to dwell in, then we need to live as those who are the new temple. And this is shown through the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. These are the characteristics that we should be exhibiting in our lives to one another. The second is that we are to trust in Jesus, the one who transforms our corrupt hearts. See, the disciples struggled with this. There are times that they trusted in Jesus, or seemingly so, and believed what he was saying, but then there were times they completely missed the mark. But then eventually they got it. Eventually they understood, and part of that was through the help of the Spirit. But we have to understand that we, we need Jesus to be the one to uncorrupt our hearts. We can't do that on our own. These religious leaders, they tried, but they never could. These, even the disciples, even in seeing all the signs that Jesus did and experiencing him and being with him daily, they, they needed help. Our hearts are naturally corrupt and we need the work of the Spirit to come in and transform us from the inside out. We can't do it on our own. So what's this last passage then have to do with all of this? Well, I believe it teaches us that Jesus is the antidote to the corruption of sin. So these last few verses in chapter 2, 23 through 25, I want to reread this because it's, it's, it's so incredibly important. And I think sometimes the point of this gets missed. Verse 23 says this, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This passage alone could be like seven different sermons. <laughs> there's, there's so much in these verses. In fact, in his archives of sermons, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on this passage three different times 
with very lengthy sermons, and they were all different. Basically, what this passage is teaching us is Jesus knew the heart of man and didn't entrust himself to all those who claimed to believe in his name. What does this mean? This is kind of confusing, right? Because what, what if, if someone believes in him, then they would, be a, they would be Christian, right? Jesus would entrust himself to them, that the Holy Spirit would dwell within him. What, what, Dustin, what does this mean? Jesus at one point tells us that many will say, Lord, Lord, but will never know him. Do you remember that passage? He will say that some people will call on his name. People will say, Lord, Lord, but they never knew him. For example, the rich young ruler believed in Jesus, but was unwilling to give up his possessions for him. And wouldn't follow him. James teaches us that even the demons believe in Jesus, yet they shudder. And we know that the demons do not have eternal life. See, believing that Jesus is the Son of God and the only one who can save us from our sins is only half the equation. We must also trust in Jesus. And this trust, I believe, can only come from those in which the Holy Spirit works on first. In the same way that Jesus is the one who uncorrupts our hearts, he's also the one that draws us to himself. And the thing about becoming uncorrupt is that we not only believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but we also need to trust him, to trust that he can transform us from the inside out, that we can't do this on our own. See, I think that we have such an inability to ask for help. It's, it's detrimental to our society, and it's detrimental to us. We have to learn that it's okay to ask for help. We have to learn it's okay that we can't do it on our own, because we can't. Right? Believing and understanding that Jesus is Lord is one thing, and maybe even believing that God is real is another, but trusting him with your life, submitting yourself before him, giving your life over to him, that's a, that's a whole other level. It means that you will, you will follow Jesus in whatever he's calling you to do. It means that even when you don't see the end of this journey, you still trust that God has your best interests in mind. It means that you live in a way that is different than others. That means that you are given the ability to love in a way that's different, to forgive in a way that's different, to express anger in a way that's different. Not rageful, not sinful, but holy. And he says this here too, that he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't need people to tell him how wicked man was. He could see it. And he saw every one of their hearts just as much as he sees ours. Jesus truly knows our hearts. It actually is kind of relieving that he does. Because I think often we struggle with this idea of, well, how do we know if someone we love or how do we know if someone we know is saved? Well, yes, there's the evidence of their faith. Maybe, maybe we can go back to a profession of faith. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Jesus knows their hearts. God knows their hearts. And whether they belong to him or not is between ultimately them and God. And for me, I find that comforting because it, it, it makes me have to trust Jesus more in that. And so our hearts are poisoned with the corruption of sin and we cannot cure ourselves. And it is only through Jesus, the antidote of this corruption, that we can be saved.
my seminary paper file never got saved. I had to throw it in the trash or in the recycling bin, depending on what kind of computer you use. And I never got it back. But I did not have the power to change that file. I didn't have the power to repair it. I didn't have the power to fix it. No matter what I could do, no matter what knowledge I had of computers, I could not save that file. Do you know why I say that? Because that file, in the same way that works, is the same way our hearts work. We cannot save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. There's no one we can go to on this earth that can fix ourselves. There's no amount of external work we can do to make ourselves look holy and look pristine. Yes, you can go to church every day, or not every day, every Sunday or every Wednesday, and that's great. Yes, you can pray every day. Yes, you can read your Bible. But until your heart is changed, none of that matters. That doesn't lead to eternal life. That doesn't transform you from the inside out. It is only by the blood of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit changing you from the inside out can you be saved and transformed to where these things truly begin to impact your life. And so as we have this time of invitation, what I invite you to is a couple things. One is to respond to this text. To ask yourself, is your heart corrupt? Do you have an anger that is quick? Do you lack patience? Do you lack zealousness for the things that that maybe God is zealous for, like the harm of the innocent or, or the way that, that God's word and his gospel become defamed? Maybe you are a Christian and maybe you struggle with this and you just haven't quite grasped what it means to truly understand what it means to grow in your faith and to practice these fruits of the Spirit. I would encourage you to ask the Lord to work in your heart and to help you either repent of sin that you haven't repented of or to learn how to do those things well. So this morning as we pray, this invitation is open to you to respond. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your transforming grace. God, as you uncorrupt our hearts, God, as you, as you make us new people, God, for those that trust you, for those that know you, God, I pray that you would help them to understand what it means for them to live righteously. God, what it means for them to not overcome or not succumb to unrighteous anger, but God, what it means to use the emotions that you've given us well. God, that we would be zealous about the things that you're zealous for. God, that we'd be passionate about the things that you're passionate about. God, that we would care well for others. God, that we would care well for your church, that we'd care well for our community. God, that we would not succumb to sinful anger. God, not succumb to corrupted anger. God, that you would help us to grow in patience, to grow in steadfastness, to be slow to anger. God, I pray that you'd help our corrupted hearts to understand you. God, for those that have never given their life over to you, God, who's, who've never put their trust in you, who've never repented of their sin, God, who's, who've never truly believed you are who you say they are, God, I pray that you'd work in their hearts. And God, I pray that they have questions. God, I pray that if they want to know more about this Jesus who can transform them, God, I pray that they wouldn't leave here without talking to somebody. God, we pray that if anybody wants to join the church, God, or just needs prayer, Father, that they would, that they would ask, and God, that they would come forward. So, Father, we thank you for today. God, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know our hearts. 
You know where we stand with you. And God, we pray that we would have a good standing with you. God, I pray that you would help us to know, to know and understand that we can't fix ourselves. And God, that you would help us to seek you out in all things. It's your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen.